This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Mission Show. My name is Vivian Langford. And Salut Babette, Andy and I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We are broadcasting on their land from Radio 3CR in Melbourne, and also we can be heard on Radio Skidbrough in Sydney. Tonight we're going bush, and we're going to find out about carbon drawdown, how trees projects to plant more trees and how also sequestration of carbon in soil can be achieved. We'll talk to Jess Panagyris, a great campaigner from the Wilderness Society, Wayne Westcott from Greenfleet and Louisa Keeley from Carbon Farmers Australia. After the mega bushfires you'd think that the remaining trees would be safe wouldn't you? But even while we were all locked down by the pandemic Logging continued. We'll hear a little bit from an uh, online uh, rally that was about saving the Tarkine in Tasmania. We'll hear from Dr. Bob Brown and Dr. Lisa Searle. That tree in the top left of the screen now has been saved by those young people out there spotted it. It's on cave country. It's on what's called cast. It should not be logged. It was marked for logging. They've got a tape around it, 17 metres around its girth at the base, full of wildlife up there, will now be saved due to their sharp-eyed action. But after that comes the public campaigning, the contacting of our politicians, the funding of action-oriented organisations, and ultimately peaceful direct action. And we'll hear more from that from Lisa. Dr Lisa Searle is a GP in Tasmania. She also volunteers with Médecins Sans Frontières in the world's most troubled places. But her heart really is in forest campaigning and she loves the Tarkine. Although all the campaigners have observed the COVID lockdown rules and we've had rallies only online, logging has continued throughout the pandemic period. Here's Lisa. I've been involved in campaigning for Tasmania's forests since about 2007, since the Upper Florentine blockade, and it's just been, it's such a roller coaster. You, you lose places, you win places. I've seen so many places lost. And um, I think one of my favourite things is seeing people experience these forests and experience these places for the first time. And, and then the realisation that they can actually do something about it, that people can become empowered and do something to fight against um, the destruction of those places. Um, and on the, the flip side of the coin, I think there's nothing more devastating than standing in a fresh clear fell or uh, walking into a place that I knew and loved and seeing that it has been destroyed or that it is smouldering from recent regeneration burns. Um, and I don't think I don't think you ever get used to seeing stuff like that. And I spend so much of my time out in these forests and in, in these threatened forests and um, seeing places lost and seeing places being actively destroyed. Through everything, despite this pandemic, despite the hurdles, despite the um, the difficulties that we face on the front line, we are not going to stop. And as long as Tasmania's native forests are being clear-felled, we will be there. 
um, we'll be there making sure that people know what's going on, um, making sure that we're doing everything we can to get them out of native forests. We want an end to native forest logging. We want sustainable timber Tasmania, Ta'an, Xinjiang, Britain Brothers. We want all these companies out of native forests now. It's, it has to be now. There is an urgency in all of this because every day that goes by, more trees are falling. There are trees out there today in old-growth native forests that are being felled. Um, and we can do something about it. And then we'll hear from uh, Jessica Panagaris. She says that White Australia is at a critical moment. We're suddenly aware of how precarious our future is, but time is running out. And she feels that more people, it's a very optimum time for more people to get behind forest campaigns. Meanwhile, on the land, a lot is being done. Beyond Zero is updating its land use report and one vital part of that is replanting forests, which can sequester carbon. We hear from Wayne Westcott about thousands of trees planted along the Bundaberg shore. The reason was they wanted to stop the turtles being confused by city lights. And so this curtain of trees was, was put in by Greenfleet to preserve the turtle habitat. Altogether, they planted over 9 million trees. And now they're getting into blue carbon by restoring mangroves and seagrasses. And our third speaker will be about what farmers can do. And it's a lot. Farmers and landholders can be rewarded for improving their soil carbon. They can get carbon credits for taking out the legacy load of emissions that lock in climate disruption. As Louisa Keeley says, every single leaf is a solar panel. And soil carbon credits, even though they're very new, can be quickly implemented. In fact, she says that the soil carbon credit scheme should be on steroids. So now let's get on with the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Jessica Panagiris from the Wilderness Society. She has been a forest campaigner for many years. And the first time we met was up at Lake Macquarie where she introduced us to an Indonesian forest campaigner but tomorrow is her last day with the Wilderness Society so I wanted her to sum up what has been achieved and what is the big picture for carbon sequestering, water retaining, habitat providing forests in Australia. So how are you feeling Jess? It's hard to say goodbye but it's also been such an honour so there's a lot of joy as well approaching tomorrow. I found that in 2018 the Wilderness Society say they blew the lid off Queensland's hidden deforestation crisis and improved badly broken laws. Well I think they were the Newman government bad laws where they were rampaging with the uh, deforestation but I believe that deforestation in Australia is up with the really terrible countries who just seem to have no laws. A lot of people don't know it but Australia has climb to become a global deforestation hotspot alongside places like the Amazon and the Congo. And as you pointed out, largely that has been driven by Queensland. Uh, when Campbell Newman was elected Premier, he started undoing the deforestation laws that they had in place in Queensland. And we saw almost overnight a tripling of the state's deforestation rates, such that we're now at the point that an MCG-sized area of forests and bushland is being bulldozed every two minutes and Australia is now on this global list of deforestation hotspots. So, so one of the things that we in the Wilderness Society did around that time was to try and get that message out because we did some research and we talked to a lot of people and we found that most Australians had no idea 
that Australia had such a huge deforestation problem. Mm. And the first step in fixing that problem was for people to understand. And so what did you achieve? We prioritised raising awareness about the issue first. We, we ran community forums across southeast Queensland. We ran television ads in Queensland in the lead-up to the state election to try and pressure both sides of politics to commit to fixing the deforestation problem. We uncovered a whole bunch of scandalous deforestation and got footage of that deforestation out um, on the television media, in the print media. Uh, We really raised awareness about the issue, along with a lot of our allies across the movement. And I want to talk about that because, you know, progress on the environment is always a team effort. Um, And we're in alliance with a number of great organisations like WWF Australia, the Queensland Conservation Council, a whole lot of smaller conservation groups in Queensland, wildlife carers, vets, sustainable farmers. So many people came together um, Mm. to really raise awareness about the problem. We were successful. So the recently re-elected Queensland Labor government um, back in 2018 passed the state's strongest deforestation laws and what we'd love to see next is those kinds of laws replicated around the country yeah because you know in 2020 with an extinction crisis you know Australia has one of the worst rates of mammal extinction in the world with a climate crisis we all we can all see the damage that we're hurtling towards um, and the catastrophic bushfires over summer just emphasize that climate change is here and now and is destroying the things we love With the extinction and the climate crises, there is just no excuse for Australia being a global deforestation hotspot in 2020. So we need to have laws in all of the states and territories and national laws that stop the bulldozing and the logging of high conservation value mature forests and bushland. To me, it's a no-brainer. Ah, well, but last week we we covered the bushfires and the wildlife impact and, you know, the thing that stuck with me most of the people said the the silence the deafening silence when you went back into those forests just black sticks no habitat there so many animals just totally extinguished so we really talk and that's preceded by a massive drought you know the country was tinder dry it was on the maps you could see it from queensland to tasmania the place was on fire so these are forests but what about, you know, this clearing, this land clearing is always on farms usually, isn't it, for, for cattle farming or cattle livestock? So, again, one of the, the things that I'm, I'm proud of um, being part of during my time at the Wilderness Society was to really try and get data on this issue. Like, what is actually driving Australia's deforestation crisis? And so um, we conducted GIS, geospatial um, information systems analysis of the underlying drivers of deforestation in Queensland. And what we found was that the vast majority of deforestation, um, over 73% over a five-year period, was linked to beef production. Um, The next highest driver was sheep production, and then there were much smaller amounts for mining and urban development. Um, So what that tells us is that actually if we could transition our beef production in Australia to deforestation-free practices, then we would go a huge way towards fixing Australia's deforestation crisis. And the good news about that is that actually most 
beef producers we found in Queensland were already deforestation free. So that's already the mainstream practice, but there's just a minority of, um, of producers who are still deforesting large areas. So if we could just fix that, um, both with laws that end deforestation and also companies that buy beef, like Coles, Woolies, McDonald's, if they all stepped up and said, look, we're going to have a policy that from now on we're not going to buy any of our products from, you know, beautiful forests that have been knocked down, then if we have the, the laws and the corporate practice, we could actually fix this. We interviewed a guy about Sylvie Pasture a few months back or a year back, and he said it's, it's perfect to have mixed-use farming. You know, you have the cattle, but you mm -hmm. also have other crops growing there. You don't have to deforest for that. You have the forest there as a canopy to protect the cattle anyway in the great heat waves that they experience. So, okay, I think you've answered that really thoroughly. So let's move on to the environment protection laws. I'm, as you know, because this is a, a climate action program, so I'm focused on climate action. And to me, the trees are carbon sinks. And, and it may sound really mechanical of me, but I look at a forest and I think that's sequestered carbon. Recently in Victoria, we had the Friends of the Lead Besser Possum. They got pushed and pushed for several years and the Federal court said, yes, because the lead beta possum was threatened in that forest, that forest couldn't be logged. So this has been a long battle. But do we have to keep going, you know, possum by possum, species by species to stop those, uh, to get those environmental protections to cough up a bit of, a bit of legislation? Look, you made a really good point at the start that um, this is the climate program. And yeah. what are we doing talking about possums in nature? And I think it's, is so important because in Australia and, and sometimes in the rest of the world, we, we kind of have two conversations. We have a mm. climate conversation and that's about energy and it's about transition and um, then we have a nature conversation and that's about possums and it's about <laughs> pretty trees and, and those two conversations almost happen separately. Mm. But actually they're so connected because if you, you know, every bit of biodiverse landscape is a carbon sink. It's not just a carbon sink. It's also a home to native wildlife. It's a home to biodiversity. It's, it's binding, you know, the soil together so that it's productive and keeping our water clean. But it, it, it's both of those things. And so when we talk about protecting forests and bushland, not only are we talking about protecting the wildlife that live there, the beautiful, iconic Australian animals like koalas and wombats and possums that call those places home, we're not just talking about pretty nature, we're mm. also talking about this kind of hard-headed <laughs> ability to sequester carbon in the landscape um, that all of the projections of staying within the two-degree guardrail say is essential. And so if I had one message out, mm -hmm. out of the last many, many years of my work as a forest campaigner, there's actually one really simple thing we need to do, mm. which is we need to keep both the fossil fuels and the forests in the ground both for climate and also for the beautiful nature and wildlife that we all love. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions. And we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever. And we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. You know, if, if we start in Australia, I've seen some phenomenal campaigns um, 
at the community level where people are driven by love for a patch of forest or bushland that they know um, and they throw everything they've got at it, you know, citizen science, developing alternative ecotourism proposals, going and doing direct action in the forest themselves. There are people that love, love these places so much that they'll just employ every tactic and that, that often has huge success. You know, my very first ever environmental action was as an, I think I was 12 years old, <laughs> um, marching for the end of old growth logging in Western Australia where I grew up. And there were so many different groups involved in that, community groups, the Wilderness Society, the WA Forest Alliance, all sorts of groups. And that was a hugely successful campaign. If you'll indulge me, you know, on my last day, um, probably my, my favourite patch of forest in the country, which is the southwest forest of Western Australia. My family lived there, see incredible tingle forests. I don't know if you've ever seen them, carry trees. They're absolutely spectacular and they were logged early on and it's been the actions of generations and generations of conservationists and scientists and, um, you know, politicians that were persuaded to do the right thing that have, have saved those forests. They're not perfectly saved. There's still really good work going on to try and stop the logging of um, what's left of some of those forests. But that's a place that's incredibly dear to my heart, always will be. So thank you for indulging me. I just wanted to talk about that special place. And the Wilderness Society was involved in the campaigns um, to save a lot of those areas from logging. I've just read a book, a novel by Annie Prue called Barkskins, and it's it just covers about 400 years of North America, Canada and North, mm. you know, the US, in the earliest days. And these co colonists came, and it's all through the eyes of people who were in the forestry work you know each generation of the families were making money out of despoiling forests but they never thought of it as despoiling they always thought it was infinite an infinite resource and even one mm. element of the family goes over to New Zealand and they see those great cowrie trees and just amazing almost in, it's a real challenge how we even cut them they're so massive yet they do and they make money and and it just goes on. It's a, it's a magnificent, it's a masterpiece of just historical reconstruction through the eyes of these characters who only see their little bit of it. And I think it's that myopia that we suffer from. <clears throat> and I think, you know, we're at, either we're at the end times or we're at, at the beginning of some new times. And I wonder, just with, you know, for your generation, climate change is the frightening prospect, but do you feel that we're gaining traction, you know, that the, the community, the grassroots, the people who protest, the people who love their patch, all of that, all those people, plus the scientists to see a bigger picture on all their models. Do you think we're gaining some traction on this? Or Look, I, I think, as you say, what we've been dealing with is a fundamental mind shift in, in white Australia. I mean, obviously there were traditional owners here um, before Australia was invaded and um, they had a completely different set, you know, there were hundreds of different nations, um, but from everything that I've been told and have read about it, had a fundamentally different relationship with the land, but the white colonial mentality has just reached such destruction. So we are dealing with a fundamental mindset. But the thing that gives me huge optimism is I, I honestly believe, and this is borne out in the research, that kind of concern in the community about climate change and environmental destruction has never been so high, especially in Australia following the catastrophic bushfires over summer. 
you know, environmental concerns, climate change concerns were polling the kind of highest order issue um, in, in places in Australia that you would never normally think that that would happen. So I think we're at this really, we're just at the critical time where awareness and concern about the precarity of the climate and environmental situation is sky high and we're also running out of time to fix it. So now is the time to act. And I suppose what gives me hope is seeing more and more people all the time, people who have never been involved in anything, you know, campaigny or actiony or who, who find all of those things quite quite scary, who are turned off from politics, are actually uh, are turning on to the fact that, gosh, it is going to take all of us doing everything we can to turn this ship around. I honestly believe that we can do it. We, we haven't run out of time. There's still hope, but we have to join with other people and we all have to do the best we can. So we've been talking to Jessica Panagaris from the Wilderness Society and she'd know if that's happening because they do a huge amount of campaigning. Here's a particularly beautiful anthem from Miguel Heatwally and the Ecopella Choir. So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. Of all the life at your command, you have the right to make or mend. To break or blights within your might, but what will you tell yourself at night? So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. With empty pockets, empty hands, within your voice your wealth abounds. The common currency of song, we learn, we keep, we pass along. So stand up proud, you singers all.
So we've heard about how wilderness society campaigns to protect the forests that we have, and now we'll talk to a group who claim to have planted over 9 million trees. Wayne Westcott is the CEO of Greenfleet. Welcome, Wayne. What's your story? Well, we're a 23-year-old not-for-profit organisation that has a very simple mission. We receive money from individuals and corporates, so no government funding, individuals and corporates who give us money to offset their carbon for the next 12 months. Um, we take that money and every winter, generally, we plant that into ecosystems around Australia and New Zealand. The key thing there is we aim to legally on title uh, ensure that those trees are protected for up to 100 years. It's a, it's a very strict and um, precise science and art, very simple and yet it's quite complex underneath. Uh, okay. Well, I see that Peter Brock is one of your patrons, and I think the trees was, was oh well, I think the trees <laughs> you plant are intimately tied up with cars and transport. Is that the sort of transport emissions are the main part? That's where Greenfleet began. So Greenfleet really began with this idea of just over four tonnes a year is the average used by Australians. And so, but in those days, we're talking late 90s, it was felt that um, even though people couldn't reduce their, their emissions easily, they could offset them. Now, Greenfleet's always pushed very hard that people should be taking all those um, opportunities to avoid, reuse, reduce, etc. before they offset. So we began with vehicles, and that's typically around $65 a vehicle, an average, just using averages. Uh, that's been our the basis of the work we've done now for some years um, Having said that, uh, so therefore we work with fleets, large fleets um, and small fleets. We work with, you know, your local plumber who just has two vans who wants to offset that, mm. um, a simple way for them to take climate action. We've expanded beyond that, though. We do now uh, household emissions. We do airline emissions, you know, flights and, and so on, deliveries. Um, and the big product innovation we did last year was we now do a 12-month innovation as well. So so the the... Off, offset typical offset of an Australian average Australian is 23 tons, and so we offset that for an entire 12 months, and that's been incredibly popular amongst our yeah. supporters. Well, that one appeals to me more because there's something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I read that, the 365, I think it's called, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, like a dollar a day to offset your that's emissions. Correct. Simple, you know. But there's something that bothers me about offsets. I've, you know, we've seen with the global pandemic, global emissions have come down quite a bit, not enough even. Mm. But a lot yeah. of that's represented by all the grounded planes we've seen pictures of and cars in their garages. But they all start up again soon. And I, I could get an offset from you from Greenfleet. I just looked it up for a return trip to Sydney for $12 or a, a trip to London and back for 148. That's the offset. I just think it takes the guilt out of it, but it doesn't deter people from fossil fuel travel. Now, you said that you firmly mm -hmm. espouse decarbonising, but I think there must be a better way, this offset. Do you mm -hmm. Over the years you've been doing it, have you thought there's a better way to get that money to plant the trees? Well, I think offsets are now seen very much at the UN level, the global level. Offsets are seen as a very important strategy for the transition to a low-carbon society. So it's very hard for us just to transfer everything over in one go. Um, there's a lot of legacy investment. There's a lot of legacy behaviour. And as you said, um, here's an opportunity now for us to totally reset the dial, but it won't happen. 
Mm. Uh, we will we will change some things because that's happening. Um, and as you mentioned before, um, if we look at our transport area, we know that we're getting more electric vehicles. So we now have an EV hybrid offset. We know we're going to have more autonomous vehicles and shared vehicles down the track. Mobility will be different. And let's face it, if you use public transport right now, mobility is going to be very different under a COVID-19 regime for the next probably 12 months. So having said all of that, um, I think uh, offsetting is one strategy. It's one of the parts of the way we take climate action. I think it's very important that we do that. I, I'd have to say I don't really, I'm not interested in guilt. Guilt is not a useful mechanism or emotion in this world. Um, it's a short-term motivator. And I think probably the green movement has been part of doing that too often in the past. We don't really talk about uh, guilt. We talk about climate action. Because the reality is, you know, maybe you, you, you may well be different, but most of us have cars and many people need them to get their kids to A, B and C, D or visit their mum on the other side of the city or whatever it might be. So we're going to have to use them. And when we do, we can offset their implications in a very direct and practical way. So don't think that that's only part of the equation. The other part is we're building native we only plant local native forests so these are ecosystems that we're protecting for up to 100 years which provide habitat for native flora and fauna um, and you know reduce soil erosion improve water quality and so on all the things that forests do that are wonderful for us so i think it's really important that we see the big picture here will we still be offsetting in you know 200 years who knows but i can tell you now it's a very important strategy for us to not only conserve the forests we have, but also to restore ecosystems in a smart way. You were talking about farms before, Vivian. Um, we need to restore ecosystems and make our farms and our communities more resilient to drought and increased climate change impacts. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I'd like to give you a chance to describe some of your properties because it's very interesting. One of the <laughs> Greenfleet places where you've planted a lot of trees is in Queensland called the Mingjela Dagon Co-op, I think. It's now maintained by eight Indigenous clans. And the other one's in Victoria. I saw a photo, beautiful, of Wurnit Lang Lang, where now yep. the frogs are coming back. Let me give you a, a sort of sense of, say, some of the big things that we do that might be useful mm. and, and put that in context. So so um, probably the most interesting for your, um, for your audience would be um, the work we've been doing at Bundaberg. Um, you may know of Monry Po, which is a very famous turtle beach, um, loggerhead turtles. And we planted 80 hectares behind, right on the beach, to provide a curtain to stop the light from Bundaberg, the mm. urban light, discombobulating the turtles. So instead of them going out into the ocean, they were coming back inland. Um, and that work, which we started years ago, um, and that forest is growing strongly, we're now looking, um, I'm now also chairing the community um, the community working group up there that's working with putting sensors on the lights to reduce the lighting in the street lights. So this is about sustainability is a much bigger picture than just um, specifically trees or even ecosystem mm. restoration. So that's a good example of us connecting to a, um, a community in a very particular way. Um, Wernit Lang Lang down in Gippsland is an interesting project because we've done in three years' time, if you go down there and see what well, I was down there actually Friday a week ago, mm. and it's incredible the the <clears throat> fast way that fast-growing forests grow in Gippsland. 
just up the road from that, we're hoping to purchase a property at the moment. We've, we've purchased Wernick Lang Lang, but we're also looking to purchase another one at which we hope to do soil carbon. We're about 220 hectares. Oh. Half of it will be forested uh, in our tree sequestration, and then we want to test soil carbon and the link between regenerative farming practices like um, rotational grazing and using additives like biochar and deep-rooted perennials to improve the soil carbon and for us to measure that and to monetize it with the people who buy our carbon offsets now. Mm -hmm. So that's a very exciting kind of next step for us. And lastly, we're doing a reconciliation action plan. Um, so the work we're doing with Indigenous communities around Australia is, is still early days, I'd have to say. I wouldn't overhype it, but we're a very practical group. Um, I don't believe in really talking these things up until we do it. But a very exciting project that we're negotiating at the moment with the Queensland Government on is the back of Noosa, 1,100 hectares, so quite a big size, ex-pine forest. And what we want to do is work with the Cubby Cubby uh, Indigenous Corporation uh, there to work directly with them to collect the seed, grow the plants on, to plant and to monitor over time. And we, we're doing that with Jaja Warung up in, um, up just north of Wedderburn. Um, and we're looking, and we did it, of course, uh, with Gadajul in, Bun, in um, Bundaberg. So instead of sort of broadly talking about what we want to do is work in specific areas mm. where uh, there's a nice alliance between the need for Indigenous communities to bring their kids back to country, to build their economic future, which, and we can be part of that, um, and also to bring the resources we have, which have always gone into local communities. So we've always used, worked with local nurseries and local seed collectors, local planters and rippers and sprayers and all the rest, um, but to re really now increasingly focus on working with Indigenous communities. This was probably best, you might have seen a before and after with up at Kawanyama, which is right up in um, North Queensland, um, FNQ, and on the Cape, actually. and that's um, a, uh, an area of uh, fruit trees that we've put in because they're so remote that they really don't have much fresh fruit in that area. And the trees have absolutely gone crazy. Um, mm. So even though we're not um, extracting carbon from them, we thought this was a great way to really start to connect ourselves to the traditional land managers of the, of the country. So a lot of opportunity for the for our organisation ahead around soil carbon. We also do blue carbon, so we're doing a, currently a project in uh, with Queensland as well, looking at blue carbon, which is mangrove, seagrass, and salt marshes. Oh. Um, so these are the wetlands of the edge, so the, the the bit between the ocean and the land, if you like. And what that's about is um, they are interesting areas to sequester carbon. We think there's a real opportunity to work there and we'd love to do that if we can and sell that to, um, you know, the corporates and individuals who are keen to do that. Great. That's great. Well, there's much more to it than I thought. And that <laughs> Listeners, a good idea may, may never have heard of Green Fleet and you're obviously all over the place. So, you know, working good. in so many parts of the country and we've just had these massive bushfires, so that must have set back forests enormously. So it's just... Pressing on, now this winter I suppose you'll be planting again. We are, we, we've actually almost completed our planting because we fast-tracked it because I was worried that the the virus might mean that we were going to be locked down and unable to do our yeah. planting. So we, we pushed ahead. 
Um, so that with the bushfires, it's interesting because we don't plant pine forest or we don't plant blue gums, we don't harvest anything. The beauty of that is that our native forests recover very quickly, very quickly. So they regrow quickly. And you know that if you go out into the areas which were burned, you'll find yeah. they're already regrowing. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, right. It's the beautiful thing about a eucalyptus tree, right? So, so we have, um, so we have, uh, so, and, and additionally, because we protect the trees for so long over 100 years and count the carbon for 100 years, it's only really a small blip in the graph of carbon um, in terms of having a fire. Um, in terms of the long-term life of the carbon that we're getting out. So it's really not a big problem, um, except, uh, oh, unless, sorry, I should say, that um, f- that fire occurs in the first, you know, two to three years because then we've got a very young seedlings mm. that would be upset and or a, a mega fire, which does happen every now and then and probably under climate change will happen more, um, or... Um, sequential fires every year in the same area because then the trees start to be unable to to mm. um, set seed. But generally speaking, we've been we've been very lucky so far, and we expect to be. But it's getting harder and harder with climate change, mm. with drought, um, and with you know more difficult situations. But that's one of the reasons why we're looking at packaging soil carbon and blue carbon up with our tree carbon as well. Wow. All right. Well, thank you very much, Wayne. So we've been speaking to Wayne Westcott from Green Fleet. I just advise you to look at their website. There's tons there to read. Even Walt Disney's been involved in um, the Prince Harry Foundation. So, you know, exactly. lots of lots of uh, interest in that. So thank you very much, Wayne. You're welcome. The recommendations that EPA have not already introduced are the very ones that, according to this report, come in on July 1, 2020. That's now gone to November 2021. So polluters, go for your life because we've got the same emasculated EPA that we had before. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Tonight we're returning to the great subject of drawing down emissions. With me is Louisa Keeley from Carbon Farmers of Australia. I heard Louisa speak at a Beyond Zero Emissions Zoom discussion, and it's a pity you can't see her pictures, but you'll hear the liveliness in her voice. There's been a lot of innovation since Beyond Zero first put out a land use plan, few years ago and Louisa has been one of the drivers of that innovation through carbon farming. So welcome Louisa. Could you take us back to that time when your farm near Mudgee got 75 mils of rain in 35 minutes? Uh, we were tree changers and so I came to farming um, you, you know later and uh, we had 1700 acres in the Mudgee district and we were farming fine wool, very beautiful wool and, and a lovely, um, you know, farm. But we came straight into what was then known as the millennial drought. And that was around 2006, 2007. And so all I had was what was commonly known as a book knowledge uh, and, um, you know, the practical um, day-to-days of running a farm were, uh, you know, a big revelation uh, to me. And uh, yes, and we were chosen as as one of ten innovative farmers, actually, uh, uh, Vivian, and and given education on the carbon cycle, and that, that was when we understood what uh, farmers, 
farmland and photosynthetic activity, including city gardens. Every single leaf is a solar panel. So we had, uh, you know, learnt a little bit about how to save some of our country so that we didn't overgraze. Uh, and so many of our paddocks were already uh, rested. And, mm. and this is a key, Vivian. Mm. When, when you're talking about farming, uh, the, the key is it's not the animal that's causing the destruction. It's the way the animal is managed. And that includes sheep and it includes cattle as well. Mm. And so our big revelation, we had uh, separated our sheep uh, into um, paddocks and fed them uh, in sheltered paddocks with a lot of um, rocks and things so that they wouldn't mm. destroy the ground. And we had fed them and we had rested the rest of the, the paddocks. Mm. And then this huge rainfall came. The farmers will always tell you that a drought finishes with a flood. And mm. so we had 75 mils in 25 minutes. We oh. were uh, crutching at the time and uh, shearers are allergic to uh, rain and, and, <laughs> and to water. They won't touch a wet sheep. So what that shows you is how quickly it happened. And so yes. it just came down in this flood and, um, and our son went down and got the kayak and uh, and uh, they opened the floodgates and and he kayaked uh, down much to the surprise of the uh, uh, of the sheep that were in the race at the time and i can send you these photos i I'm, I'm i'm happy to share them with you um but what it did was in the the paddocks that we had saved the uh, grasses uh, came back so quickly and that was because we had given the leaves, the photosynthetic machinery, mm. a chance to recover. When there is so little uh, leaf left on, a, on the ground, there's no energy. But if you allow that photosynthetic uh, activity to happen, it'll come back quickly. You're into drought early, uh, later, you're out of drought earlier. So oh. the win-win of, of doing that was uh, was amazing, and that has been termed carbon farming. Yes. Okay. Well, look, you and your husband held the world's first carbon farming conference, I believe, at Mudgee in 2007, and I bet it's a great struggle to get farmers to adopt new methods. Maybe it's just a stereotype of farmers, but I know it's expensive and it can be risky even, but... What's your big vision? Like, where could this go? I know you've already partnered with someone in Nepal. So, like, what's your big vision for this? It's linked to food security, Vivian. My daughters, my sons, your your children um, can, can all uh, be given hope in terms of uh, what we can do for the planet. Because if you're interested in food and you're interested in good quality food, then carbon farming assists in building that. Mm. And so our vision is that farmers and this is worldwide, uh, control over 50% of the land mass. And if we have 50% of our land mass it, with the most natural of systems, which is photosynthetic activity, and as you improve your, photo, your soil carbon, you get better water holding capacity, better soil structure, and better quality of the food that we're doing. So you need less pesticides, you need less, uh, you know, uh, man-made fertilisers, Mm. And so the, it's the win-win. You think of a um, a small acreage in Nepal, which is where we're uh, working, you think of a two-hectare farm, and if he is uh, able to improve his soils, improve, and you can do it with trees as well, so agroforestry is where you put food trees in an agricultural system as well, 
And if you can do it there, um, and they get a small reward for the carbon mm. from people such as somebody in the city who wants to help with both climate change and food security. And if yeah. we reward our farmers uh, using, you know, now we can use the carbon markets, well, then we can make a huge difference to, towards zero emissions. Yeah. Well, food security has been very front of mind lately because of the pandemic and around the world. So I'd like to know why is now from a climate point of view, why is now so important to sequester uh, carbon in the soil? We've got a huge challenge and it's because we've ignored it, Vivian, you know, as, as, as you, you know, you, you would be aware and it's, it's come to a critical point. And so it is simply the case that we cannot make Paris targets worldwide. The Paris Target Agreement, you know, preferred 1.5 degree change, okay, mm -hmm. unless we take what's called the legacy load. So uh, what farmers does and ph photosynthetic activity does is take out the legacy load. Now, that's the load of uh, emissions that have been put up there 70 years ago, 50 years ago. But simply doing efficiencies doesn't take out that load. Yes, it prevents uh, more carbon going up in the air. And all the solutions are now absolutely required. But unless you use an activity that will take out the legacy load, you because the amount of carbon already in the air will send us through the 1.5 yeah. unless yeah. we do uh, unless we take it out. So certainly efficiency, certainly all of those things, but the farmers can buy you time on a grand scale by taking out large amounts of the legacy load. So that's the importance of the farmers. And then, again, you know, no soil, no food. We can't all live on, you know, hydroponic tomatoes. Yeah. It's, they, they can do it on a small scale, but the, the soil is critical to, to life on Earth. And what we're doing when we do this uh, carbon drawdown and the carbon farming is improving our soils as well. When you train farmers, I know you do a lot of training, and uh, you're very, you're very ambitious. What you do, I think, with your group, you talk to carbon agents. You know, there's this market in carbon, and also, I suppose, you talk to government people. What common values do you appeal to? You know, what have they all got in common? I imagine some of them don't even want to talk about climate change. Don't really believe in it, but. They can see changes in the rainfall and they can see these unprecedented droughts and heat waves yeah. and fires. You know, we, yes. we all see that. But given yeah. all the differences between people, how do you talk, how do you appeal to them? What's the common factor? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen The Castle, the sh you know, the television yeah. show The Castle, mm. and tell them that they're dreaming. That <laughs> is literally what they told us. They told us, tell them they're dreaming. If they ever think that we will have a method by which farmers can be paid to store carbon in their soils. And they had endless arguments as to why, you know, this mm. reason, the other reason. You can't measure it. You can't do this. You can't do the other. And then uh, pers perseverance is a great thing, Vivian, <laughs> when, when you're doing uh, the, these things. So you keep on knocking on doors. You appeal to the people who can understand and so you need to find that person. Mm. Uh, and, you know, in a marketing sense, you will never speak to your, your whole audience, you know, mm. the whole community. So you, you've got to choose the ones. So you choose the, in terms of government, what you're, you're looking for a, a sympathetic bureaucrat a lot mm. of the times, Vivian. 
because you, you know they are the ones who if if you talk to them and they understand they might take it higher yeah. um and you know another thing we learned when we were doing the lobbying was to take solutions to government. Don't just tell them what's wrong with your policy. Your policy stinks. You know, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't get them warm and fuzzy. But, you know, if you, <laughs> because, they, look, they've got obligations and they know they have to meet them, even if they don't necessarily really, really believe in their hearts, mm. um, they, they know. And we have had, you know, a carbon policy ever since the, the Julia Gillard era. And the carbon wars have been very real. And yet, little bit by little bit, so, so not only did we get a soil carbon method, there are other methods. There are methods mm. for transportation. There are methods for energy efficiency. Mm. Now, if we could get a method that would, in my view, if we could get a method that would um, help communities to reduce emissions and be paid a carbon credit for it, and think about schools, think about, you know, churches, think about community centres mm. that could improve their efficiency, which they're doing already in some instances, but if they had the incentive of a carbon credit, um, you know, they would be actually uh, affecting this as well, and then I think you'd be, you'd be getting a lot of community support. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. Yeah, well, that was my last question. Although we all eat food and we all wear woolly jumpers, you know, most people in the city don't really participate in something you could call a drawdown activity. And I, I know you can't do it alone. You know, the country... Country is depleted of people. I know farms run on fewer and fewer employees, don't they, nowadays compared to, say, a century ago. So you can't do it alone. How can we help? What if, for instance, your butcher and a lot of you know, people go to butchers, or let's call it Colesworth, which is what you know, yes. the common advice of them is, uh, you know, and, and they said, look, here's a choice and you can buy this mince um, and it's this, that and the other thing, or you can buy uh, this one and it's actually been shown, audited, measured, verified to have reduced your emissions. And you're, and you pay a premium for that. And for that, you get a guaranteed, um, lowering of emissions as you eat your spaghetti bolognese. A jumper, wool, for instance. You know, if a farmer has gone through a carbon farming process and he has a, a credit, then that wool could be sold at a premium. It, it's the idea of carbon neutral, but it's not carbon neutral. It's, it's assisting a farmer to take the carbon out of the air. And, and, and therefore, even while you're living your normal everyday life, you are assisting in the drawdown of carbon. You've published a handbook about all the different carbon farming techniques. 
And listeners can get a free copy if they sign up for your newsletter, I think, at Carbon Farmers Australia. But I'd like you to tell us a story of, like a case study, one farm, how they increased the soil carbon, how they were paid, and how they've helped slow down climate change. I, I don't think it's all about planting trees, is it? It's doing something to the soil. So the actual soil carbon credits are very new. There's only been 406, uh, 407, uh, you, you know, issued at the moment. But I know that farm and I, I know how they started. So a farmer in Gippsland, uh, Victoria, and they become interested in what's, what's generally known as regenerative farming. That's what often happens mm. with these uh, farmers who change their um, approaches. Often it will be because they've hit a wall, Vivian. Yeah. I've seen photos of farms whereby, you, you know, one year it's just dust and, uh, and you know, and, and the bank's knocking on the door and then they know they have to change and then they start their uh, different practices and that's what has uh, built carbon in the, in the soil. In the, mm. in the terms of the one who has been issued um, uh, carbon credits, um, he is doing a, instead of just planting a um, crop uh, of oats, for instance, and then mm. the, the sheep eat the cattle eat the oats. He's planting multi-species at one time. Now, what this does is give biodiversity of it, Vivian, mm. and we know that biodiversity is what we need to come back. We have simplified all of our systems, and mm. so you know we've got monocultures everywhere, and 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 it's not even good to look at. And instinctively, we know it's not right because. When you look at a, a beautiful natural meadow, it's got 20 things in it, 20 mm. different plants. Mm. And each of those is forming a function, feeding different microbes, taking different amounts of carbon out of the air. And so he has planted multi-species. He has seen his worms come back. He's seen his structure of his soil come back. He's had his carbon measured as an increase in soil carbon, and he has claimed those carbon credits. So you need a carbon project developer to guide the farmer so that they don't fall in regulatory holes yeah. because this is all audited. It's got integrity standards behind it. The government, the Australian government, is very careful to make sure that we are not making claims that aren't true. So in the popular mind, offsets, you know, we talk about offsets, they're usually through yes. planting yes. forests, but those take those trees take 15 to 20 years and we've just seen a bushfire, you know, if that had been your carbon offset, it was all gone in a day. But you, in your blog, you say the only solution is agricultural soils that can start sequestering carbon instantly on a large scale, and you've mentioned that large scale earlier. I also learned in your blog the first carbon cocky of the year. City people might not know that we have carbon cocky of the year, but that person, he said that he had a passion for soils, and you've said that too, a passion for soils. How do you get that rich soil and contrast that with those huge industrialised farms, monocultures, as you said, which are depleting yes. us? So if a farmer has been overgrazing, so he's allowed his cattle to, to simply stay in one paddock, you know, for a long time. And what the cattle do is they keep going back to the best, to the ice cream, to the best plants, which happen to be the best sequestering plants, you know, the perennials. They've got beautiful leaves and things. And then what that does is reduce the uh, competition and that allows the weeds to come in and that allows the, the degradation. So they need, in a grazing sense, to change the management. 
And what they will often do in in terms of uh, grazing is add more fences to their farm, Vivian. And what that gives them the chance to do is have the cattle in one place for less amount of time and then the cattle move on. And then the cattle don't come back to that paddock until the grasses are rebuilt again and they're strong enough to, to handle another bite. In your blog you said you'd, what you'd really like to see, the real answer is to put the Carbon Farming Initiative, CFI, on steroids now. So is that a, a demand you're making to government? <laughs> Look, or a war footing. You, you know, yeah. it's it's really interesting because look what we can do when we put our minds to it. We have just shown it with COVID, you know. And and not only that, we've shown that when um, a, a, a sensible uh, proposition is put to Australian people, they do it. Government's lucky, uh, you know, that we did. But it, it, it shows if you put soil carbon or, or sequestration, you know, via photosynthetic activity on a war footing, we don't even need anywhere near as much as COVID. We just need, um, you know, a little more uh, incentives uh, in order to, to, to make it normalised and yeah, really take off and make the difference that we can. All right, I won't ask you about the prices and the market and all of that. That'll be for another day. But thank you very much, Louise. It's been terrific talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on soil carbon, carbon offsets, defending and planting forests. It's all climate action. Thanks to Miguel Heatwally for the music, to Jessica Panagaris, Wayne Westcott and Louisa Keeley for speaking to us tonight. Thanks to the team, Andy, Michaela, Raoul, and my name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. Of all the life at your command You have the right to make or mend To break or blights within your might But what will you tell yourself at night? So stand up proud, you singers all You have the right to stand as tall As those who grow and those who tend as those who may and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. With empty pockets, empty hands, within your voice your wealth abounds. The common currency of song, we learn, we keep, we pass along. So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. 
3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au.